That's the way the cookie crumbles. This is the focus group. They're all business, except when they're not. It's the focus group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the focus group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co host, Mr. John T. Nash. We're here every Wednesday through our Facebook live stream or YouTube, or as we know, most of you do a time shift and listen to us uh, all, all, well, all different times. Even people will download these shows five months, a year later. <laughs> and do road trips. <laughs> road trips. You know, I was looking at our, at our analytics, John, and uh, the ice cream trip we did is still the most popular show. Really? Yeah, which is surprising to me. I don't know. We had a lot of valuable information there about the flavor of vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go, ice cream. Remember so, we were like, what, what's your right. favorite vanilla? So uh, thanks for joining us. As our show works, we do a little banter. Then we have a caught my eye, two stories that John and I found during the week that we discussed. We have a business birthday, and then we have some shop talk. Shop talk today um, is about uh, an, an eogram or enneagram. Enneagrams, yeah. yeah. Have you ever taken the test? I did an online one after did you pay having for lunch it? with. No, I didn't pay for it, and that's of course that's the big ripple, right? You should either professionally have it done or pay for it. And uh, I wasn't sure about, the, about my results. And for those who are wondering, the enneagram kind of falls into that. Was it Briggs Myers Briggs? Yeah, personality. Although Myers Briggs was more external, and this is more yeah, internal. More internal, supposedly. Yeah. And we'll discuss that when we get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see that we probably, by our tone, already have a couple of opinions about yeah. this stuff. So, so, so we'll see how that goes. So how how are things going, Mr. Nash? They're going well. Okay. And before we go too far, I wanted to uh, point out something. that You got a note on Friday from our friend Lauren over at Deep Discount, right? And she sent a note that said, Friday fun fact, in 1907, an ad campaign for Kellogg's Corn Flakes offered a free box of cereal to any woman who would wink at her grocer. <laughs> 1907. Like, you know, I thank you, Lauren, for sending that because that really takes you back to a time when like, you know, could, it, could that be done today? Like, well, those were the, at the good grocer. old days when they actually put cocaine in Coca-Cola. <laughs> Remember, it was an uplift. <laughs> The girls, you have that's right. Right, you had a little bit of that, and you were you'd go all day, mm-hmm. clean until mm-hmm. you probably went into a horrible bout of depression at night. Yeah, after the coke <laughs> wore off. But the but um, winking at the grocer, like I mean, they would have had to train the grocers and the cashiers to like if someone winks at you, somebody winks at you, they get a box of Kellogg's. Yeah, they get a box of Frosted Flakes. Or I mean, what um, if you had a twitch in your eye? Yeah, oh, I got raisin bran. Oh, yeah, I got this, this, this. Do you think your grandmother would have gone in and winked? No, not from no. what I've heard lately. Uh, uh-uh. no. <laughs> Whenever I vis- I visited my mom for a few days while her husband was skiing and I took care of her and my uncle overlapped me and then he said when I when you leave give me a ring and he lives down in Bucks County and I told him some of the stories mom told me he goes now let me set the record straight some of those things are revisionist <laughs> history that you're hearing and let then, me and then set I learned the more record straight. It's straight yeah sound familiar <laughs> then I just heard things I've not heard before about the family. And about um, my grandparents and about all sorts of things. Like, I never knew my granddad was really good with electricity, that he could have been an electrician. Oh, really? That's kind of interesting, yeah. Well, considering you have a fascination with electricity. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, as am I going to get fried by it? But <laughs> No, but I mean, you you had thought you would like to learn about either putting yep. in sockets or... Now, Bob mm-hmm. can do that stuff, can't he? Bob learned the simple rule of electricity, yeah. And any electrician will tell you that it's perfectly safe to touch stuff as long as you're grounded and you're not completing the loop or whatever they call that. So, Or you take everything, shut everything yeah. off, right? 
Yeah, I'm always afraid of that and gas. I'm always afraid of uh, doing we've, stuff we've had a, Look, let's say we have a healthy regard for it, right? Yeah, well, that, that'd be a way of saying for it. Respect for it, maybe. <laughs> a healthy respect, respect for yeah. it. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Can you hear Spike barking? No, I can't. Well, that's good. Well, so he's barking. He's uh, a little Spike. He's going to be 22 in June. 22? And uh, we're having our furnace replaced, so Spike is beside himself that there's somebody in the house. So he's uh, running around like a little nut. Now, did you know, I know your home and where this furnace is going to be at. So there's a whole process, right? They have to take the old yeah, unit Yeah, I hope it's not going to be noisy, but we'll see. I don't, well, we're fine. I don't hear a thing. And yeah. I know that they have to do all this work upstairs, which is kind of, when you think about furnaces, people always think these things reside in basements, yeah, mine's, right? Yeah, mine's in the attic, which is weird. But, yeah. Because so. cool, you don't have a basement. No. Which I wish I did have a basement because I think I, you know, I need storage. <laughs> if Richard, when Richard hears this, he's going to say, no, you need to purge. Well, I have a question for you. So your college diploma, right? You get your college diploma. What did yeah. you do with your, is it in a box somewhere? I have it still in the, um, the little in the sleeve fold, in the, in the sleeve that it came in. Yeah. And what do you do with it? Should you hang it up? Some people hang theirs up. What if I told you I didn't uh, that I just don't know that it matters? Like you and I, two years out of college, we were not even considering hanging our diplomas, were we? No, and you know, people. I know a lot of people who did, but I'm just wondering. You know, there's. I have a whole tub of stuff like that. Diplomas, awards. Yeah, I had an award from the fraternity, and then I had some other little things, and I was like, "What do I?" I have. I suppose if I died, it'd go right in the garbage. I don't know. Oh yeah. Well, hey, look, I got to tell you. The other day I was walking to the train in the post office and I was crossing the street and there's a big apartment building across from ours. Dr. Ruth lives across the street, actually. Dr. She's Ruth still alive? There. Yes, I believe so. Um, <laughs> in her 90s. There was a truck outside this apartment building and all these there was a st steady stream of people rolling stuff down to the truck. And it was chairs and a dresser and a curio cabinet. And it was like, it was furniture and possessions. Yeah. And all you do is look at it. And my brain instantly said, someone passed away. Yeah. The family doesn't want, if there is family, they don't want any of this. And every diploma, paper, award, photograph, as long as that the individual that anchored those items is still around, it makes sense. But when they're not, yeah, it's just paper. I did see someone once who did a... Um, they took every award and diploma they had, and they bought inexpensive frames. They made like a collage wall out of it, mm -hmm. and they just had fun. They put it all up, and it was, you know. But if you did that, where would you where would you put it up? Would you just put it up somewhere in the house? I, that that well, was I my would, I would probably be allowed to put it in my closet because Bob rules the. <laughs> he rules you know, the here's walls. a wall. Here's a wall for you. Oh, it's in the closet. Well, that's the perfect wall for it. <laughs> I was upset. I had a bunch of my. So I had a basement in Pennsylvania when I moved. I had a box that got wet and ruined all of my fraternity composites. I remember you told me that. Which was yeah. upsetting to me because there was people's you know, names and pictures of whatever, whatever there. I had those hung up in Pennsylvania in my den Your at office, the time. right? But, right. And then I had taken them down as the years went on. But I would have liked to have kept those because they were... I just would have liked to have kept those. But And I've asked people along the way. A friend of mine actually tried to, with his phone, take pictures of his... His pictures, they were a yeah. little off, but at least I have them on an electronic thing. But So there's stuff like that. I don't know. So I'm trying to figure out um, where to put a lot of things, which leads to this attic thing, because we had to empty out the, the, the attic space, which has a lot of Christmas stuff in it, mostly. 
And so pulled all that stuff out so that they can get to the furnace. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> More money I wanted to not spend, right? Just remember, as you go through this stuff, if you have a question about your diploma, you could always scan it. Well, yeah. You know, and, and take it out of its folder. It's a piece of paper. Go to an OpTag folder. You know, you could, you could store flat things like that without problems. A friend of mine was very practical about that. I had some clothing that I was attached to. Yeah. He goes, take a picture of it and throw the clothes uh -huh. away. I totally believe Cause, that. Because yeah. you look at the picture and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. He's like, you're never going to wear it again. And what are you going to do with it? So, I don't know. I, like, I have a friend who kept his little Boy Scout uniform. I would not, no. <laughs> Which remind me of the neighbor you had across the street, Frankie. Didn't he have like a communion dress or something from his he mother? He had his or... mother's wedding gown in a shadow box frame. I, <laughs> above, yeah, he had a right lot as, of weird stuff. Right as you left yeah. the bathroom, I remember it hanging. It literally was right, yeah, right there. You're like, what's that? My mom's wedding gown. My, my mother's wedding gown. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that happy note, Mr. Nash. We'll caught your eye this week. What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. All right, well, we're going to go far away from <laughs> pictures and diplomas, et cetera, et cetera, and we're going to go to orbit. And uh, I came across a fun article about some of the first photographs ever taken from space and the camera they were taken with. So it's uh, basically it's this. Um, John Glenn was set to go into orbit, and um, before he even attempted this, it took a lot of the astronauts in training to convince NASA that they actually had to put windows in the capsule. And the NASA engineers are like, oh, you test pilots, you're also, you're also, you're also crazy for having a window because you can see what direction you're going in. It's a space capsule, but they won and they put a window right. in. And so then about a few days before the launch, uh, John Glenn went and bought himself something called an Ansco auto set. So in this picture on, on YouTube, there's the camera up in the upper left corner. It was a $40 camera that he bought in Cocoa Beach. I always think of uh, Major uh, Nelson. <laughs> I dream of Jeannie lived in Cocoa Beach. He got the camera for 40 bucks, and he brought it into NASA. It was uh, made by Minolta. It was one of the first automatic exposure cameras on the market. So what, me what that meant, if you were a photo buff, was that you didn't have to fiddle with knobs. The camera would right. automatically figure out what the exposure was. You would just push the button, take a picture. So he brings it in and they're like, okay, you know, I want to take this to orbit. And, and they realized that he couldn't use the camera with those bulky astronaut gloves. So what they did is, and if you're seeing in this picture here, they flipped the camera upside down. They ripped off the front of it and they put, they welded or glued onto it a pistol grip with a little button thing that would actually move the mechanism to take pictures. Oh my gosh. So he goes into orbit with the camera and he shot 48 frames. Now, if you are a film buff, meaning you remember when photographs were taken on film, we all know that there was no such thing as a roll of 48 exposures. It was 12, 24, or 36. Remember this? Yeah. What the NASA engineers did was they took a 36 exposure roll and they edited, like in the dark room, they added 12 extra frames. <laughs> to it and then put that in the camera so he could take it to orbit so is that all he took for 48 pictures he took 48 pictures from the first um i think that was what it was it was it mercury yeah mercury atlas it was a mercury mission and it was these pictures which surprised but well nasa had never planned on them taking pictures in orbit because remember they were so fixated right. on getting into orbit and then eventually to the moon to beat the Russians at their own game. That None of the pretty stuff, taking pictures, that didn't right. matter. They just wanted to make sure they could get someone up and down safely. 
these pictures, of course, changed uh, people's perceptions of of them being on the world. And I just had one of the one of the ones they showcased there. But I just think it's interesting and fun that a forty dollar camera, which in 1962, I guess that was a pretty that was yeah. a cheap item, right? It I wouldn't probably go out probably four hundred now. Maybe yeah. Um, so do you something... think so? They were not. There were no plans to have any pictures taken. No. That's interesting because now the thing would be loaded with cameras, right? There'd be cameras outside, inside. Yep. So that's interesting. Yep. Had he not brought this in, we'd never have any of these pictures. No, and, and had they not, his, and they did it within four or five days of the launch, which is amazing to me. It's ingenuity. Someone looked at it. They said, okay, you're going to have to push this button. So he could do everything at the same time. On the pistol grip, there was a, a lever he could push with the thumb of the glove, of the, of the uh, spacesuit glove, that would click the thing and advance it. Because remember, he had to advance these things right. manually. They didn't go by themselves. Yeah, so uh, that that I just thought I like stuff like that. I like that kind of problem solving from the past. And, and, and I guess you didn't was, bring an extra roll of film. Well, you couldn't do a thing. Yeah, it was you're in the capsule. You're going up for a short amount of time. You're coming down. Yeah. When you and I saw those capsules, it, 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 I, I would never there, been able to do it. Well, there might have been more room in that little thing we went up to in the St. Louis Arch, right? I mean, there they was. were crammed in there. Mm-hmm. And they were up there for how long? Zipped around, zipped around? Uh, the Mercury missions, they did several orbits, but it wasn't, yeah. you know, they were not up for days. They were up for a matter of hours or maybe, yeah, a little longer than that. But, but still, they were designed to go up and then come back down and splash and get recovered. But, you know, you, you, know, you and I were at the Dulles uh, Air, Air, yeah. Air Museum, right? The, the Which is a branch of the Smithsonian uh, Space. Yeah. And... Yeah, you and I were. I remember we were looking at one of the capsules, and you're like, "Were these guys smaller? They, they, like, they were they tiny, must have been small guys." Yeah, I mean, the capsule was tiny. I'm not so sure I would have said, "Okay, I'll get in, I'll go." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get scared at amusement parks. Wondering mm. whether oh, tight, you didn't like that whether they tighten the, the screw or not. You know, remember the ride up to the top of the arch. Uh, you were hell bent to do the arch thing, and I, <laughs> I don't like heights. I've learned with you, you don't <laughs> you, care you, about you, heights. You, you actually enjoy them. So I. <laughs> I figured I would have to do this. I would have to go up. And I'm glad I did. Yeah. But even up at that arch, when I look at it now, I've looked at pictures of it. I mean, it was just kind of, I don't know, a tornado can come rip that down, can it? I don't know. Thank God it did it while we were up there, right? (laughs) I don't know how you get down. Are there there steps? I assume there might be steps in case of an emergency. I don't know how you would do an emergency evac of the St. Louis Arch. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, boy, was it a hot day. It was 102 by the time we hit the arch. Remember that? It was really hot. My um, my caught my eye. I saw it came from us at uh, CNN. So you, as you know, it was it's Girl Scout cookie season, which ends in sometime around April. And they usually come out with new cookies each year. And uh, this year they came out with something called the Rally, which was similar to a Thin Mint, hmm. but it was raspberry flavored. And it was limited edition. And the Girl Scout organization was trying to figure out how they were going to sell these, and they've said that they were very slow to get on uh, online sales or to, to, to do sales electronically. And so they decided that this one particular cookie, though limited edition, you would only be able to get it online. Well, we all know what happened, right? It's, <laughs> it's far easier to go online and order something than to actually go physically and buy them from somebody in front of the grocery store or in front of the pot dispensary or the gay bars in WeHo or wherever the Girl Scouts were selling them. So people went on and cornered the market on these rally cookies. And some of them were going for as high as $40 a box on eBay. 
Wow. And the Girl Scouts were all upset because many of the, there was only a limited number made. There's only two bakers that do these cookies. Um, I think they're both out of Kentucky or one's out of Kentucky called ABC Bakers and Little Brownie Bakers. And they make the cookies, but they order, you have to order far in advance. You know, this as with anything, you don't just say, oh, let's do a limited edition. Yeah. yeah. You've got to so get they, packaging. They, I guess they guessed a quantity. Is that what they're? Right. So they, exactly right. So the lead time was they thought, well, well, we've never done online sales before. We don't know what, what's going to happen here. So we're just going to make X amount. And uh, so they were gone um, very fast. And it said it upset a lot of the different um, Girl Scout troops across the country, as well as uh, a lot of the parents. and. Um, and they said that it really kind of some of the girls just would people would ask for the cookies and they said well, we don't have those and then they'd say then people would not get anything you know they wouldn't order anything so they said as a lesson for the girls they thought it was um upsetting but they tried to make it a learning experience and there was a particular um group of girl scouts in seattle which i thought it was great so the parents decided they weren't even going to promote these cookies because they had seen where this was going where people were cornering the market so this one <laughs> One parent, Cornering Deb Perry, the market on Girl Scout. Right, she said, as a scout parent and co-leader of the troop outside of a troop outside of Seattle, I didn't even bother to try to order the raspberry rallies. The selling season starts earlier in other parts of the country, and we heard of all these reports about shortages elsewhere. So I, I said, and we decided with our girls, we weren't even going to push it. So we encouraged people to buy something else, and we had the girls go out to sell what they actually had on hand. So she said she saw this as a as a she saw the situation as a chance to teach the scouts how to adapt and embrace the challenge. Um, she said scouts and her daughter's troop have been encouraging shoppers who asked for the rally. We don't have those, but have you tried the Adventureful, which was in, introduced last year's little brownie cookie with a caramel thing in the middle? Yes, yeah. So they were upselling to something else. We don't have that, but we do have this. Have you tried the the new cookie we had last year? We have plenty of those. So she said when things don't go as planned or when people say no. The girls uh, learned a lesson from that. So she actually made the the uh, the aspect of the fact that there, there was an unintended run on these cookies. Um, rather than being frustrated and upset and not doing anything, she uh, she turned it into a positive. They said you know, pre- I, they said predicting the cookies. This one guy from Ohio State, some a college professor in, in marketing and logistics said predicting the demand for the rallies may have been especially difficult because the scouts introduced a whole new way to buy them. And so then that was the other issue because they were bought online. But everybody knows it's easier to just go online and click, right? Yeah. So do you think um, from our past and our present in marketing and advertising, there's no such thing as bad press, really? I mean, so there's a raspberry rally probably problem, but Girl Scout cookie season, it just drives awareness, right? Yeah, and I was wondering, would... I, I guess if you were smart, not smart, but if you somebody figured out the loophole in this thing to say the scouts are slow to the punch here on this online thing, because most places would say, I'm going to limit your order to one box online yeah. or something, right? So somebody could have gone on there and said, you know, I want 15 cases of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, yeah. they get shipped in. So it's, it's another one of these unintended uh, consequences that happens with technology that gets ahead of of reality or, or what uh <laughs> still amazed that there was a run on raspberry rally. run on raspberry have you tried to even know about it did you know no the last time i had a girl scout cookie i was at our co-op board meeting last wednesday and one of our board members brought a tube of thin mints and, you love those uh, thin mints. he's super thin and in good shape and i know why now because he puts the roll of thin mints and a bunch of us are like well after that point in the meeting i think i'll have a thin mint i must have had 
three to his one. <laughs> I'm surprised you only had three. A lot of people love the Thin Mints. I love Thin Mints. Mike. We used to put them in the refrigerator. Well, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, Thin Mints were... I bet if... I would love to know the data on that. Like when they put together the order for all Girl Scout cookies, where does Thin Mints sit in the production volume, right? <laughs> That's a good point. My guess is it's probably tops. The, the other has one to that be was, the biggest. What was the one? Samoa's when they came out with that caramel Samoas, chocolate. Yeah. It was almost like There's a candy also, bar. Yeah, we, we did a charity bike ride one year, um, and the woman who was directing the charity bike ride was a former executive of the Girl Scouts. And she was kind of interesting, and you know me and my habit of making little jokes and snarky things. And one day, she, where a bunch of cyclists are coming down this hill, and she's standing at the bottom of it, almost <laughs> looking like she's going to get hit. And it was kind of a bad place to stand. And I'm in a pack of cyclists. They're like, "Who is that? The director down there? And what's she doing with those flags?" I said, "Just call her Lorna Dune on your way by." <laughs> Everybody starts riding by going, Lorna Dune, Lorna Dune, you know. <laughs> and and then later on, it rippled back. Like, so I was ahead of a lot of riders. And later on in the day, like, I would hear from people, like, you know, oh, apparently her nickname's Lorna Dune now. <laughs> oh, my God. You're like there Trump you giving go. out the names, Nash. Yeah. Well, at least it was a cookie. I mean, it wasn't, you know, like Ron DeSanctimonious or something like that. So they said that uh, you're right. The number one selling cookie. For Girl Scouts, and they don't give volumes because probably they're, they're hiding money, right? The uh, they said Thin Mints are by far the number one, followed by the Samoas, mm -hmm. then followed by the Peanut Butter Patties or the Tagalongs, then the Dosi Dos, which is also a peanut butter sandwich cookie, and then the Lemonades or Lemon Ups. Those are the Tim, top but five. the Samoas, the one with um, are those? Do they have coconut in them? Yeah, the coconut and their chocolate. That's the number one selling cookie, by the way, in New York State, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Maine. Connecticut, wow. Connecticut is doing the peanut butter with the chocolate-covered peanut butter one. It's the ah, only okay. state okay. other than South Carolina on the coast that likes those. And then Thin Mints is um, Vermont, Rhode Island, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and uh, most of the West Coast other than Oregon likes the... Uh, the Samoas. Yeah, they, they have it listed by state. So they, they've got it down with science. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that whoever's doing the cookie manufacturing, there's a lot of interesting data there, at least from my point of view. I like to know these things. Well, I think it's good to know. Good to know. All right, friends, uh, thanks for joining us. We're going to take a super quick break. And when we return, we are the only show in the universe that does business birthdays, and we have a good business birthday on tap for you. And our shop talk, which is after the break as well, we're going to be looking at the uh, personality, personality test called the Enneagram. A lot of people swear by it or swear at it, but we'll let you decide <laughs> after the break. So stay with us. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Now, back to the focus group with Tim and John. Available pretty much everywhere. Hey, welcome back to the focus group. Tim Bennett here with my good friend and co host, Mr. John T. Nash. As John mentioned and teased before the break, without further ado, we have our business birthday. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the focus group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. I wonder if we can get the show down to a half hour, John. <laughs> People will still listen. Uh, yeah, we'll see. The, uh, the business birthday today is Oscar Ferdinand Meyer, 
born March 29, 1859. He died at 95, just short of his 96th birthday, on March 11th in 1955, was a German-American who founded the processed meat firm Oscar Mayer that bears his name. So he was born in Germany at the time, which was a um, not part of the German Empire, but he was in Württemberg, which later became part of uh, part of what is what was known as the German Empire. His family in 1873 came to the U.S. and they lived in Detroit for a while with his cousin, and uh, then he and his cousin made their way in the uh, in 1876 moved to Chicago, and uh, he was working for a butcher there. And came up with the idea after a couple of years of working there, decided he and his cousin and then his brother back in Germany, um, he asked his brother to start studying sausage making and thought there was an opportunity, particularly with so many German immigrants uh, in the U.S., to have some of the meats and things that uh, he could not find in the U.S. that he had from home. So liverwurst, bratwurst, that sort of stuff. So he began saving money. Three years later, he started a butcher and sausage making, or as they say in Philly, sausage. (laughs) <laughs> a butcher and sausage-making shop of his own with his brother Godfrey. They were in their 20s. Um, five years later, the, sh- the shop was very successful, but the uh, landlord refused to renew the lease because he wanted to hope that um, that Meyer would say, well, we don't know what to do. You can just have the business. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. They went and they were able to buy a building uh, in Chicago, a two-story building, and incre- and actually increased business rather than letting it go to this to this landlord. So it was funny. I, I, they were one of the earlier companies that would sponsor events. And so, aside from sponsoring the German exhibition at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, they were known to sponsor lots of polka bands. <laughs> polka, I, okay, polka, That's which great. would be which would be great. The, uh, the company grew to 43 employees by 1900. They offered meats delivered across the cities in Chicago and suburbs, and they capitalized on this delivery trend. They were also one of the very first meat product producers and one of the earlier participants in the Food Safety and Inspection Service, which was cr- created by the U.S. government under the Federal Meat Inspection Act of 1906 to make sure food was safe. Their early products were Old World sausages and Westphalian <laughs> hams. Bratwurst and liverwurst, followed by bacon and wieners. So by the time of his death, um, the business had grown to 9,000 employees. Uh, They had facilities all across the country. He also founded the Lincoln Park Gun Club with Philip Wrigley of the chewing gum fame. He he became ill and uh, died six weeks later, as I said, two weeks short of his 96th birthday in Chicago. And uh, his son had taken over uh, the business along with his daughters. He, um, they, they were known mostly for the cold, you know, as they are now, Oscar Mayer, known for cold cuts, hot dogs, bologna, bacon, ham, and Lunchable products. The company's currently a subsidiary of Kraft Heinz and based in Chicago. So they remained independent for 100 years. Uh, in 1981, they sold their stock to General Foods. General Foods later acquired Philip Morris. Philip Morris, General Foods, they all merged together, forming Kraft. And uh, in 2015, Kraft had announced that Oscar Mayer was moving its headquarters uh, to Chicago. They have announced in 2017 that they're going to spend $10 million to reinvent the hot dog. <laughs> that Okay, that's a lot of money to reinvent um, a hot dog, but okay. <laughs> so hot dog sales are down, of course. And they said that, uh, not of course, but I guess hot dog sales are down. And they said that, because the consumer is becoming more health conscious, 
They're trying to figure out and do some research as to how they can increase hot dog sales. They'd like to increase them by at least 6%. Are you um, still capable of speaking or singing the Oscar Mayer jingle? Well, should you mention, here we go. So I put this in specifically for you. They had several advertisements on TV involving young children. Yeah. <laughs> including the Oscar Mayer Wiener ad that started running in 1963. The commercial shows a young girl leading a group of children singing about what they would get if they were an Oscar Mayer Wiener. In 1973, the TV commercial featured a four-year-old Andy Lombros holding a fishing rod and a sandwich while singing My Baloney Has a First Name. It's O-S-C-A-R. Uh, it has the distinction of becoming one of the longest-running TV commercials in U.S. history. My I guess God. that commercial ran for a long time. Well, I remember if I, I wish I were an Oscar, Oscar Mayer Wiener. Wiener. That is that what, is I, what truly I truly want to be. And if, if I were an Oscar, Oscar Mayer Wiener, Wiener, everyone would be in love with, love me. with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I were. And then my baloney has a first name. It's O S C A R. My baloney has a second name. It's M A Y R. And then how does the rest of that go? Oh, I, if something about it, 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 if I ate it every. Uh, da, 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 my baloney has a name. It da, 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 me and da, da, da. Yeah, I know what you mean. You still know enough of it. The, uh, which and then is, the yeah, yeah, which is kind of hilarious because that that proves that we were totally consuming Saturday morning cartoons, <laughs> right? And they were smart enough to use kids. And then, yep. so the final thing was the Oscar Mayer is known for their Wiener Mobile, which I, I yeah. if you're watching, I posted one of my favorite pictures, which is the Wiener that slid off the road in the snow. Which was a great job for, by the way, somebody out of college. We could have driven the Oscar Wiener, Wiener mobile, John. We could have traveled around the country, you know, doing promotional things. That's we, we were job. we were too worried about mundane things like paying back our student loans. Yeah, well, they pay. There's apparently, you know, college kids they do this. There's eight of these that go around the country. But it started. I was surprised to hear this. How old do you think the Oscar Meyer Wiener mobile is? How long it's been touring? It's been touring. Um, I'm going to say it has to go back to the 50s. Am I wrong? It's 80 years, 80 1930s. Years. The first one was created in 30s. the 1930s, yeah. Oh, my God, that's crazy, right? But I was surprised by that. it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. From a marketing history point of view, that was mobile advertising, right? Yeah, it's very smart. The rolling billboard. Yeah, so that was a uh, happy birthday, Oscar Mayer. Do you, do you ever get, do you buy hot dogs or uh, The only bologna? time I ever have a hot dog was introduced by you. And it's at Costco. Costco, that's a good hot shopping. dog. Yeah. <laughs> do you think, um, like, do you did your nieces have bologna sandwiches and all that sort of stuff growing up? Mm -hmm. I mean, we always had that. We, you know, we took our lunch to school. Yep. Paper bag. Well, it was lunchbox until you were the fourth grade, and then it was paper bag because then you're yeah. an adult now. You're grown up, and it was we either had bologna. Did you have liverwurst? Mm, once in a while, it would show up. But my my father loved that olive loaf. Oh, all the mentor or something, yeah. That would show up every once in a while. Tuna fish. Uh, yeah. My mother yeah. waxed every. My mother wrapped everything in wax paper, too. We did too. And that the we little did. box yeah. would. That little lunch box would heat up, and you'd open it up and get this whiff of woof. Sometimes you never knew what you were gonna get. It was a lucky day if you got a ho ho, a ding dong, or a. Uh, no one was no one was concerned about the food going bad, leaving it in the sun. <laughs> right there was no nope. ice pack put in it. Nope, now you can't no... go to the grocery store without rushing home with the ice pack because you're afraid you, you it's going to go You know, you bring bad. up a great point. No, it's like no fear, right? It's, no. you know, 
Yeah. I was one time in England with a, at an event, and they had a plate of sushi out. In the and it was there for, oh, five, six hours. And I looked at it, and Bill, you know, you know, Bill Cyphers was with me. We were looking at it, and he's like, man, that's, I don't know. I said, I'm hungry. He goes, well, I want to touch that sushi. That's been here for, you know, going on four hours. Out and just in the open, a bunch of German journalists came in and wiped the thing out. <laughs> I was like, well, he goes, we'll see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> he said, but I'm not so sure I would have been eating that fish. It was just sitting no, out there in the, no, the, that's under the, the one lights. thing I will be cautious of, especially since it's not cooked, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, so happy birthday, Oscar Meyer. As John mentioned uh, earlier, and John found this article about the uh, Enneagram, and uh, it's a, it's, would you say it's a personality test? Oh, most certainly, yeah. Yeah. So it's a personality test, and it's it's got a lot of popularity. Apparently, I was laughing about this on TikTok with over 370 million views, but it's a system of personality typing that describes patterns in how people interpret the world and manage their emotions. And it describes nine different personality types and maps each of them in a nine-pointed diagram, which helps to illustrate how the types relate to one another. And the nine different types are the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, the instigator, the loyalist. Oh, the investigator. The investigator. Oh, the, <laughs> I like the instigator. I like that I was going to say that yeah. was you. That the actually fits better with this idea of personality, but go ahead. Right. That's funny. Um, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker, you know, the, the, the there could be ten, John. I think the instigator might be good. That's, <laughs> I think that one. But you and I, that should really be in there now that should we be think in there. about it. So there's a hundred questions, and you answer these. Now some some say this is more an internal look at yourself versus external. And we've all not we all, but a lot of people have taken. You mentioned earlier the Myers Briggs test, or these other personality tests that um, that are going to tell us how you're you know, what type of person you are. And you and I have used this in advertising and marketing when you're trying to target different consumers. Mm -hmm. And I always felt in any of these tests, and I remember having to take them for different jobs when I got out of college. And I almost thought you could rig the results. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought if you were applying for a sales job and the questions would be, I'm at a part, I, I would prefer to be at a party or I'd prefer to be home reading a book. Th those are the kinds of questions, yeah. Right. So if you if you knew yourself, oh, I'm going to get a sales job. I need to be out. I need to be about. So you'd pick a party, party, right? So I always wondered whether you could skew the results in these things based upon if you knew what you were taking it for. You'll so, appreciate this quick little anecdote. You know, when I used to work at Avenue Magazine. Judy was the yeah. publisher. We had to take a personality test before oh we were gosh. hired, and I and I took a test. And for years, I thought it was the Myers Briggs thing. Turned out to be the test they give uh, prospective bus drivers in New York City. No. <laughs> Somehow she got her hands on this thing. <laughs> what a nut she was, huh? <laughs> yeah. And I, because it was like, I think it was like Andrew, the managing editor, was like, you do know that test was for prospective bus drivers. <laughs> and I said, well, why is that? He goes, because Judy didn't want anybody to know where these, if they had any idea that they were going to be tested, she didn't want them to know where the test was coming from. And she apparently would evaluate the tests based on whether or not you could be a New York City bus driver. Are you? So I wonder if you didn't do well. She's like, oh, they're perfect. Or if you did, <laughs> if you did well, well, he's not going to do well here. You know, I think if you did well, you got in because a lot of the tests were about patience, about um, doing the same thing over and over. Like it was, it was a weird oh. test when I took it. I remember it was like, this is strange, but 
Yeah, you're out of college. What do you know, right? <laughs> New York City bus driver test. That's hilarious. <laughs> I can't believe I've never heard that before. So you took this anagram thing, right? Um, I took Enneagram. I've Enneagram, taken Myers-Briggs. I've taken the... Um, the archetype tests where you're like the wizard, you're the lead, you're the shaman, all the, you get all these things. And ultimately, um, as I read the article and I went through all of this, um, there's a, so for if you're listening, um, there, you can go online and look for Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, and you will find a wealth of sites that offer you a 15-minute version for free, a half-hour version. If you pay for one, you're going to get the full 100 questions and someone analyzes your answers. And you're going to be given a primary and a secondary category, which is the, the nine types that Tim outlined earlier. Um, most people will definitely fall into the one primary one. And so I took an online one. Um, I think it was 50 questions. And I came out as the, uh, I was the achiever. And I, and I read the achiever thing and I'm like, is that really me? Like, cause I think I'm more of a enthusiast or. <laughs> see, I would have put you as the helper. Yeah, see, and that's the thing about these tests because, and even in this article that we're referencing, which came to us from, I think it was Wired Magazine, Tim, is that where right I right. found this? Um, or CNBC. Um, everybody they questioned, every expert, they're like, okay, like here's one guy who's a professor at Notre Dame named David Watson. It's one of the more mysterious tests to me in terms of where types come from and on what basis it lies. So professors and individuals or academics in this realm of how we test personality and these traits question Enneagram because it's like, well, what's the basis? Why? How is some one person achiever, one person's a challenger? But I know people in um, several walks of life who swear by Enneagram, and when they were given their, really? their, their silo or whatever they are, they embrace it and they run with it as if that's the best thing they're going to ever. And I, when I worked with a career coach many years ago, he had me take three different tests. And I said, why three? He goes, because it's sort of like when you're told to read three different news sources. You're going to get one point of view here, one point of view there, one point of view, and you're going to be able to critically put it together and say what makes sense for me, right? Right. I um I laugh, and there's also these certified Enneagram coaches, uh -huh. which I thought maybe this could be an addition to our business. We could, be, <laughs> we could be a coach. I mean, you give this test. So the test you took... See, I took one, and then it wanted $25. Ah, okay. So $20, $20 was just going to give me my result. $21 would give me my result in some sort of an analysis, and $25 would give me a whole lot of data, plus I would get an IQ test. Oh. And <laughs> so I did not buy it, but I wanted to. I was curious as to where it was going to tell me. So I have to look for a free one. I could not find a free one. You know, do you find as well with some of these things that um, there's a patience factor in here? And and they'll ask, like the Enneagram test that I took asked the same thing about three different times yeah, yeah. And, and three different ways. And I'm like, don't don't ask me the cocktail party question trying to again. Trying to trip, yeah. Trying to trip, yeah. Yeah, do I go to the wall? Do I get a cocktail? Do I introduce myself to a stranger? Please. <laughs> you just asked that. But, you know, to put this in relationship to the other tests we've been mentioning, uh, the Myers-Briggs and some other ones, the Myers, for example, um, is is definitely viewed as academics as being far more legitimate. And, and later in the article, they talk about this. It says, most academic personality research doesn't categorize people like this in those terms we put up uh, for Enneagram. 
The international personality item pool test, for example, gives respondents scores in five different personality traits area, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness to experience. Instead of assigning you a title such as extrovert or introvert, the test tells you how much extroversion you seem to have. So this type of test, the Myers-Briggs, that's far more popular for um, employers because it's a better predictor of behavior, or so these right. researchers claim, right? So if you had, so if you took five friends or, you know, say you even had, somebody says to you, okay, you knew these three people or five people in college. Yeah. Or these were friends of yours that are current, you know, current friends of yours. And you said, put them in one of these categories. So wow. don't you think you could... Do you think you could do that? In other words, to say, oh, you know, B Betty is introverted, you know, John is outgoing. So do, do you think it's it's intuitive in that regard yourself? Or do you think if they took these tests, it would come out different than what you have your perception of the person being? Oh, that's a great question. And I think that um, the answer I would give you is for those five that I went through, uh, or actually it's one, two, three, four, yeah. Um, I bet you could say primary and a secondary trait. So you might say right. for John, maybe I'm um, agreeable and I'm extroverted or I'm conscientious, but I'm a little neurotic. I mean, and somehow that makes more sense. And I think you're right. right. I think I could assign these things. Now, whether or not the test revealed that to be a trait of the person, but I, I bet you, you know, if I'm thinking of a couple of people right off the top of my head, I know if they took a test, I I wouldn't be surprised if the result came back what I think it would be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I I often wonder about these, but I I had taken one recently, and I was exactly what you said. I was aggravated yeah. because it just felt repetitive over and over. And then I just didn't care. And then I thought maybe I'll screw the whole thing up and just answer differently. <laughs> of course, I didn't get a call for a job. But Did they ask, was that for a, an application or something? This was, yeah, this was a screen to see if you were, you know, I, I don't even know what the job was. It was some sort of, um, but I, I was aggravated because it was something, you had to do this before they even wanted to talk to you. Okay. And, yeah. And so I thought, oh, here we go. And, uh, and then as you said, I got aggravated because it kept going and going and going. And then finally I'm just like, screw it. And then it, and, um, uh, so CNBC also had the day I found this article had a one that was the next article after this, which was basically it was an advice column and a woman sent in a note to the, an advice person. And she said, after two months, multiple personality tests and interviews with HR, I haven't I, I, I haven't heard a thing afterwards. What oh should God. I do? I screamed at the at my iPad. I'm like, <laughs> just move on because you've yeah. been ghosted and you're never going to get a satisfactory answer. And this happens every day. It's why people despise job hunting, right? It, it, because it's just, yeah. <laughs> we have a we have a good friend. We we both know going through it now, and she's very very qualified for what she's applying to, but she can't even get a call back. Yeah, and I don't understand it. I don't know if it's everybody's like, oh, there's so much work out there. There's plenty of jobs listed, but she, when she's applied to these things and did everything you're supposed to do, you she's networked where she's either known somebody or then you know you change your resume for each particular job. Yeah. But um, she said, I've been talking to computers. I am going through a PowerPoint where I've got to click, click, click. And uh, she goes, I'd just like to talk to somebody. What happened to the old days where you went in, you sat down and spoke with somebody? 
and they would make the decision whether they thought you would fit because so much of it student is, work student, student work which was still one of my favorites but culturally i think so many so many jobs there has to be a fit with the personality of the corporation or the culture at the company you don't get that off a piece no. of paper mm-hmm. or filling something out with a with a click through on a personality test well and to wrap up the enneagram test um i recently spoke to someone about this experience of looking for a job Let, let's say like you're like you're me and you've been uh, a business owner for 30 years or a freelancer entrepreneur and you decide hey this is a challenge i think i might want to try maybe i want to work for a company <laughs> right I, I tell her the story and she just smiled and she said it's not like what you graduated into is it and i'm like no i said because i used to be able to go into a job interview and people would relate to you and say, you know what, I don't think they could do the job exactly as described, but mm-hmm. I think this person's smart enough to pick it up in about two weeks, and I think I'd like working with them. How do you get that off a, a personality test in a computer interview, right? <laughs> the same thing, as, as there was a, a woman I knew from, from college, and she, she had this oddball job in Charleston, West Virginia. She, she still laughed about it to this day. It was, she said, I went down there and the guy said, he, she said, I'm sitting with the recruiter and he said, I know you're not the smartest person that uh, that's applied for this job. He said, but there was something about the way you wrote your cover letter or whatever, and then I had to have you come in. He goes, I, I, I'm not sure, he goes, there's just something I think you're going to be great at this because I don't know why, but it's just, you know, sitting here and you talking to me and I know by far you're probably not the smartest candidate that, that we could bring in, but I think you're going to be able to do great. And she did. She ended up doing this great job, but it, but it's exactly what you said. It's the relationship of her sitting down or you sitting down in front of somebody and relating to them and talking and saying, you know what, I could see this guy or this woman working here. They'll, they'll learn the basics of the job, but it's, it's the other stuff that you really can't measure. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think I'm going to take the test and see. So you were, I got to write yours down. What were you again? Oh, on the any. You, you were the achiever? I was, let me tell you, I, I, my primary category was achiever. And then I think, um, individualist pop up there in two. And that was a problem because, you know, individualists who are achie- achievers who are individualists don't want to share or they're not good. Del- I mean, they had this whole thing and I'm like, okay, I get part of it, but I don't like this part. <laughs> well, there was one woman in the article said she cried when she got hers. Yeah, because she thought it would dial her in perfectly, and she could move through her the rest of her life. Is that the was that the quote? Yeah, yeah. I'm not so sure. I would. That, yeah. That's like you know, getting your fortune told. Yeah, you know, I think I see you living by the water. Oh, I better move. Well, I remember when I had my fortune told. I remember Patty Canova was her name, and she was on 34th Street in this rundown little office, and she re- <laughs> tape records it as well. And she said, "By the Run way, down little she said, um, you will never have to worry." about money but you'll never be rich you know you'll always money will find you but you're not going to be like rich i'm like and when you're like 25 years old you don't want to hear that <laughs> no that's sad john <laughs> you want to now i've come to think it's not a bad thing but that's so neutral she could say it to everybody right you're not going to yeah. be rich but you'll be fine yeah because what are the chances you're going to be rich right it's like Precisely. it's like what are the chances yeah yeah what are the chances you're going to win an oscar or, or be a <laughs> Be a sports, be a be a professional athlete or something. Yeah, so. star athlete. Yeah. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up there. We want to thank you for joining us today on the Focus Group. Remember to follow the show on any platform you choose, and of course, everything's available at focusgroupradio.com, including n- information about our partners and about uh, Tim and I. 
And you'll also find on Button there are Tuesday podcasts. That's three stories, about 20 minutes long. And you could follow, if you're following already on audio, that's dropping into your feed. And we hope you listen in like that. So I always say, and Tim actually invented this, at the end of the show, we like to say, don't text and drive, arrive alive. I've seen too much swerving around the road. And inevitably, you pass the driver and the phone's on the steering wheel. You're like, really? They've proven you can't do this and this at the same time. You're going to get a crash anyway. Doing a crossword. (laughs) As you say, they're doing Wordle. Wordle. All right, everybody have a great week, and we'll see you in the new one. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.